Okay. Um, we are making a few little adjustments um, this semester. Can you go down just a little bit? Just a little bit. Um, and some structuring uh, with group leaders. And so we're going to take, if people want to come in and join in the next couple of weeks, that'll be fine. Um, again, if you guys come on Wednesdays, you're free to come on Thursdays if you want to do both. Um, <clears throat> and if you are new, we talked about, I need to just make sure that I get your contact info and can get you plugged in. Um, and if your group leader bailed on you, um, or, you know, somebody you're hanging out to dry, um, we'll get you sorted out too. I don't remember who, um, who needs a group and who doesn't, but we'll get that figured out here in the next week or so. Um, I'm going to pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you for rest and uh, refreshment. Lord, I, I hope that uh, our break was fruitful and uh, that we, we were able to um, uh, find you while we were um, away from school and our typical activities. But Father, I ask that as we come back, we had come back with focus, with uh, purpose, with direction, and uh, with diligence, um, seeking you for more of what you have for us. Father, we want this to be a fruitful time for us as a church and as individuals that we want to have encounter with you like we've not had before. We love you. Amen. So, um, <clears throat> what I want to do tonight with you guys is share a little bit about um, what we feel like is happening corporately as a church and where we feel like God is leading us right now and try to tie that into how, it, how, it, how you fit into that. Um, and uh, additionally, where we feel like we're pressing as a group in SLM. So <clears throat> we view SLM as the leadership development for our church. Um, so Water's Edge leadership usually comes through SLM, develops leadership training, and then steps into a leadership position in the church. And so, I don't know, were any of you guys here on Sunday? You were all here on Sunday? Okay. So Sunday, we had, um, I'm just going to, forgive me if it's, it feels a little bit casual, but I just want to be a little bit casual and kind of explain some things to you, um, to give you a little bit of the flavor of what's going on. So, over the last two or three weeks, um, we had felt like we needed to refocus and um, start to, to really lean in um, again. There is almost a concern as the group gets healthier that it becomes really easy just to become a big like social community where all of our interactions together are just, we're hanging out but we're not really pressing for more of, of God, of what God has for us. And I'll explain that in a little bit tonight. But, so, amongst the leadership, I'd had probably six different conversations in a week's time from different ones saying, I really feel like if we don't get back on track and start to lean together, 
we're just going to kind of slide into church blah, normal Christendom that's, there's nothing wrong with just being Christian, I mean, but it's also a really dangerous place because it can lead to contentedness and a, and a complacency in the end of expanding God's kingdom and our knowledge of him. So while we press toward greater community and health and relationships and, and enjoyment that way, it has to be a, uh, an enjoyment, an expansion of community that's pressing in for the deeper things of God. And so Sunday happens, <clears throat> and if you're ever here on a, on a weekend service and you notice, like, everything's lining up. We don't ever talk about what each of us is going to talk about on Sunday. So I don't call Pastor Tuttle and say, hey, what's the theme for the weekend? And he says, it's going to be hunger. You should talk about hunger. We don't do things that way at all. How Sunday happens is we're all in our different things of life throughout the week, seeking the Lord. Lord, what are you doing in our church right now? God, what are you saying to the church like you did in the book of Revelation? What is the Spirit saying to the church at water's edge right now? And so we're asking the Lord individually, and out of that, and I get my little supposed to be five-minute sermonette that usually goes 12, and Kurt, you know, he gets his thing, and Pastor Tuttle his, and then the worship team, they're all separate. And so when Sunday comes together, when everything lines up in such a way, it should really get our attention, hey, God is trying to say something to us. So when, when something like Sunday happens, that's very unusual, when everything is lining up, and, and I had really felt like it was time for us as a group to refocus, make sure that our community wasn't just becoming a social interaction, but instead that we're challenging and encouraging one another onward into the deeper things of God. And so I shared some of that, and I don't remember how that happened. And then I missed pastors because I had to go help in the nursery because um, my wife is sick. And I come up, and there's three guys standing there in the back like, oh, he talked about hunger, and he just nailed it. And, and then Ryan comes up and is praying, God, you know, we want... None of that's scripted. This is all like, okay, Lord, this is what we feel like you're doing right now. And then pastor came over to me on Sunday. And he said, what do you feel like? What do you, what do you feel like? Do we keep pressing? And I said, I don't think so. I said, if we just keep pressing and, and we try to make something happen today... We leave, and it's just another service, right? Something exciting happened. It was like, wow, this was really cool. But it, it doesn't change the way that I live on Monday. And so I said, I, and he said, okay, good, because I had the same feeling. He said, I just wanted to check with you and make sure that you felt like it was over for today. But it doesn't end Sunday at 1130 when the music stops. It should continue through Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening and Monday morning and it becomes a leaning, a way of life. So what am I talking about? Um, and that's what I wanted to share about tonight is what am I talking about? What are we talking about when we say we want more of you, God? We want more of your kingdom. Press in for more. What is this? What, what is that? We try to use as little uh, have you ever heard the phrase Christianese? Um, you know, Christian lingo that only Christians understand? Because we need to be able to communicate this message to someone who doesn't know what Jesus is. 
Um, and if we can only communicate our message to people who know our language, it's really, it doesn't take very long to become inverted. And that's the danger of church life, is that when we communicate with one another and only one another, and we become our only relationships and sources of interaction, and we develop the same language and lingo, pretty soon we're incapable of communicating these messages with anyone outside of our church, our denomination, who speaks our language. So we try to use uh, language that anyone can understand. And yet some of it we understand because there's a spiritual mindedness about us, like in John 3, you must be born again. Um, Nicodemus didn't get it because he wasn't spiritually minded. Jesus wasn't just using Christian language. However, um, I'm going to explain a little bit tonight of what do I mean, what do we mean when we talk about hungering after God? What does Jesus mean when he says, seek ye first, uh, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be done to you as well? Proverbs 25 verse 2 This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And um, I'm going to combine this with Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Proverbs 25, 2 is, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search them out. I love that. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search it out. So God's, it's God's glory to hide something, not from us, but for us. So God takes glory in concealing a matter, in making it hidden. And it's our glory to seek it out. So as, as sons of God, as sons of a king, we are by nature royalty, yeah, kings, in the kingdom of heaven. And so it is our glory to seek out these matters that God conceals, not from us, but for us. So it's in the searching, in the seeking, that our glory is found. Which is why I believe, this is my opinion, this is not biblical fact, so I can't preach on this as a doctrine, but it's my opinion that hunger may be the greatest gift in the church today. And I'll explain why I think that as we go on. So, what, what do you mean, seek after God? What do you mean, seek after his kingdom? I don't, that doesn't make sense. It's, I know it's in the Bible, but how do you do that? You just try to do everything that the Bible says? Well, yes, that's part of it. Um, but there's, there's a lot more to it. Um, I have a quote in here. Obedience not birthed in affection produces legalism. <clears throat> so it's more than just trying to do whatever the Bible says to do. However, that's where I'm going to start, just to be backwards. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What does seeking the kingdom look like? Okay, so this is where I want to start. I want to tie two things together. How many of you guys have ever like studied revival, know what, uh, quote-unquote, I put that in quotations because it's a Christian word. How many of you guys know what 
is meant when you hear the term revival. Or another quotation, transformation. So what we believe, this ties together, what we believe Jesus meant when he said, seek the kingdom, is to attempt to the best of our ability to fulfill what is prayed in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we seek the kingdom, what we're attempting to do is bring to pass and see realized. Do you know what realized means? It means brought into experience. So um, when, you, uh, when you go to work, you know you have money coming, yeah, but it's not realized until you cash the check. So what we're attempting to do is see the manifestation or the, the realities of the kingdom realized in our day, in our time, in our church, and in our families, and in our communities. That's what seek the kingdom means. What's become seek first the kingdom is just try to do what the Bible says personally Try not to get in trouble. That's seeking first the kingdom. I would disagree. So I'm going to tie this together with Water's Edge, just so you guys know what um, what we're about here. A number um, there's a there's a thing that goes back 25 plus years that Marquette will be there will be a special thing about Marquette. And the Old Testament had a place called the City of Refuge. And a City of Refuge was a place where everything was just and appropriate and, and criminals would go there to seek safe haven. And it was a place of restoration. And so there's this quote, quotations, prophetic word that was, was spoken 25 plus years ago that something significant would happen to Marquette. So fast forward another 10 <clears throat> Ten years, Pastor Tuttle uh, was in. Um, was he was pastoring in uh, Illinois, Northern Illinois, and uh, didn't want to leave, and had a vision, which was really rare for him. He, I think he said he's had two in his life. He was in worship where he's usually thinking about preaching, and all of a sudden he sees in front of him, like on a screen, the Upper Peninsula, and little fires. First fire pops up in Marquette, and then fires start spreading throughout, and then through the lower Michigan and through Wisconsin, but it, it started in Marquette. And he's like, that's just so weird. And um, this was right after this church had called him three times asking him to come pastor. And he said, no, 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 and he wouldn't even return phone calls. He's, there was no way he was coming to Marquette. It was like the armpit of the United States in his, in his mind. And so all of a sudden, he has this experience during worship, and Shar's like, you should probably at least pray about it, you know? And so he goes out in a field one Sunday, and he's like, I never do this, and I don't recommend it when you're seeking God's will, but he's like, I did the flip open the Bible and stick your finger in the book and see what you get. And he flips open the Bible, sticks his finger in the book, and he gets Judges 18, 9, and 10. You will go into a, a land lacking in nothing to an unsuspecting people. And um, it just, it describes the Upper Peninsula. And um, 
So he sat in the field and he wept for about 20 minutes. Um, and then he got up and he called the pastor. He said, I think I'm supposed to come interview. And when they drove up here, Shar cried the whole way here and the whole way home because she knew God was calling him to Marquette. And since then, they've come to love it, but um, they did not want to come here. And so at the very outset of their calling to come to Marquette, they had fire connected with it. Okay, and I'll, I'll get to what that means in a second. Fast forward to 2006, the spring of 2006, these two ladies were here, and they were ministering to the church in what we call prophetic ministry. So they're, they didn't know anyone in the church, and they're praying things for people with ridiculous accuracy. They didn't know anyone. They didn't know the Tuttles. They, didn't, they, they had been here 25 years earlier and had a horrible experience. And so we invited them back, hoping that they'd have a little bit better experience this time around. And they came back, and they prayed for over 200 people over the course of the weekend. And I still can't share some of the things that they prayed because um, they're happening in closed countries. But they were describing things that no one knew about that were happening in countries on the other side of the world that people here were involved in with such extraordinary detail, you, wouldn't, you would not even believe it. I mean, I remember hearing one of these things thinking, oh my goodness. I mean, it was like they'd cut open someone's mail and were reading letters that had been written to them. It was incredible. So they did this over the weekend for about 200 people, and um, one after the other, it was just like they'd known everything about you. Well, obviously, that's what we call the prophetic ministry, where God is speaking to you through someone else. So at the end of the weekend, they said, okay, we're going to bring Pastor and Shar up here and pray for Pastor and Shar. So he's up here, and they start to pray, and she, one of the ladies, starts saying, I see the UP, and I see fire coming to Marquette. There's fire coming to Marquette. And then she said, I see fire springing up in all these little towns, and it's just black until this fire starts to spring up, and it's going to go down. And I still have the recording on my phone um, because it, it was so impactful for us. And then he got up here and extremely emotionally moved, sharing, he said, this is incredible. You know, this is what called me up here, and she just described it in detail. She doesn't know me, doesn't know anything about this. So I literally thought this thing was going to happen on October 21st, 2006. I literally thought that it was going to happen on this date. There had been a series of other things that had happened, and it didn't. Um, so what did, what did we think was going to happen? Well, that's grown as we've grown in understanding but fire in Scripture is, when it's a, a fire of God, it's connected to Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what happened in Acts 2. And it goes beyond that. It <clears throat> goes to where when God's presence comes, he changes everything. He changes people. He changes atmospheres. He changes the very soil. He changes communities. And throughout history, there have been these times where the presence of God became so so manifest that people were incapable of standing because he was so there. And then it would, it would start to affect everything. It would start to affect entire communities. Taverns would close and never reopen. And the people that were in these taverns six nights a week were 
becoming leaders in the local church and entire communities. I was in Scotland. An entire community in the Hebrides Isles was completely transformed and never went back. To, to this day, they've never gone back to the way it used to be. Everyone in the town met God. That's what it looks like when the kingdom comes. So when we say, God, we want more of you, we want more of your kingdom, seek ye first his kingdom, what we're saying is, God, we agree here on earth with what you're doing in heaven, and we want to see that realized here. We want to experience the full manifestation of heaven on the earth to the greatest degree possible. It won't culminate until Jesus comes back, yeah? There will still be death, yes. However, what the Christian response has been is, well, it's not going to culminate till Jesus comes back, so we're just going to survive until he does. We're just going to be Christian and not be evil until Jesus gets here, and then we'll have the kingdom. But if you read the scriptures and the things that Jesus told the disciples to do, they were told to go and bring the realities of heaven to earth and establish them on the earth and maintain them on the earth until he gets back. And so it was out of this whole thing and the disappointments of 2006 when it didn't happen that SLM was born. Because in this process, I realized that if God's presence came so powerfully, we'd be screwed. Excuse me. That's just... He comes, what do you do when a thousand people show up overnight? What do you do? You have a thousand new Christians. They don't know why they're at the church. They just know they're being convicted. They know they need Jesus. They know they met him when they're in the church, but now they don't know what to do from here. And I realized if a thousand, if we had a Saturday night service and the presence of God showed up and Sunday morning a thousand people were in the building, which would be tight, we'd probably have to get rid of the chairs, but we had 300 in here with chairs once. But a thousand new people are in the building and Sunday afternoon after church gets over, if it gets over, they say, I need someone to teach me how now shall I live. We're buried. We had four or five leaders at the time that were capable of leading anything. And so SLM became the dream of establishing leaders that if a thousand people showed up overnight, we'd have the leaders that could lead them and train them and equip them to bring them into maturity as Christians. This is what John Wesley did in England. John Wesley in England would go around. He's a guy who founded the Methodist church, he and his brother. And he'd go around preaching and the presence of God would come so heavily that people would be unconscious in their conviction of their sin. But he wouldn't just leave and go to the next town. He would stay with them, establish leaders among them, and then he'd go do it in another town. And so that is actually John Wesley's model that we tweaked and twisted and we hope improved a little bit. Um, but he changed England. And, and he's credited for changing England and sparing England from the same future that the French experienced with the French Revolution. And so that's what we believe your kingdom come looks like. Is the presence of God coming so powerfully that all of the systems of society begin to change. 
And so the questions that we're asking ourselves are, God, what does an educational system look like when it's a kingdom educational system? What does a kingdom financial system look like? What does the kingdom economy, how does it run? What does the kingdom government look like? How does it run? So these are the things that we've been wrestling through and questioning and developing and improving. Um, Family, marriage, all of it. What does it look like, God, in the kingdom of heaven? Now, there, there won't be marriage in heaven. You're right about that. But there is now. And there is in the kingdom. So, um, what is it supposed to look like, God? And so, we've been asking and, and trying to answer these questions. And answering some and growing and improving uh, our answers to these questions since, since 2005, 2006. And so, as a group here with SLM... What we're doing when we walk through these questions, and last semester we spent a lot of time on issues, is we're asking the questions of how does life look in the kingdom? What's God's opinion on this? What does God say about that? This is what the culture's saying, but culture doesn't define truth. God does. So what does God say about it? We declare that, and then we watch the culture change. Culture will never change the truth, but the truth can change the culture. So how do we implement and execute the kingdom into realization? We personally do it. So when I come across something in the word that is a kingdom reality, I have to implement that in my life and I have to execute it in my life immediately. And I'm going to get to how that comes about in just a second. But as a group, we also do it. We have a responsibility to one another, to hold one another accountable, and to call one another onward into greater realities of the kingdom of God. And that's what SLM is trying to accomplish. It sets up a structure so that you have the relationships in place where you can use one another, benefit from one another in moving forward as a group, as a community, into the increase of the realities of God's presence and his kingdom in our midst. The culmination of this is, there's no sickness. Someone, come, if you ever heard of John Alexander Dowie, John Alexander Dowie is a guy in Chicago. He had a powerful healing ministry, early 1900s. And he called himself a healer, and so he got taken to court. Because they said, you can't call yourself a healer, only doctors can make this claim. So they took him to court, he was reviewed by a medical panel in the early 1900s, and they, in the courts, the court documents, in the city of Chicago, the judges ruled, no, he can call himself a leader, a healer, because there is such evidence of these healings having taken place that we have to allow him these claims. He had a better healing rate than doctors did in the early 1900s. So John Alexander Dowie then moves himself to Zion, Illinois, and starts what's called the Healing Homes. And over 5,000 people went through the Healing Homes in Zion, Illinois, and it was less than a dozen died. And to get into a healing home in Zion, Illinois, you had to have a diagnosis of a terminal illness just to get in. And you couldn't get in unless they had diagnosed you as terminal. And, and if you were diagnosed as terminal, then you could come to the healing homes. And of the four to 5,000 people that were diagnosed terminal and went to the healing homes, less than a dozen actually died. The rest were healed. It's amazing. That's the kingdom reality on the earth. Lots of other stories I could tell you. 
those are pieces of an overall puzzle of God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. Okay. But, here's the but. Because we all get excited about that. I don't know, I do. And when I first came to back to the Lord in my early 20s, I would hear something like this and I'd, I'd do a jumping jack, scream, and go running out the door to try to do something more to get the kingdom on the earth. I'd want to go tell someone or talk to someone or yell at someone about how they need to repent or whatever. And over the years, I've come to realize that you, you can't rule by a king's decree if you don't know the king. And so th- what's happened in Christendom largely in America is we want to see the kingdom made manifest. We want to do Christian works, but it comes out of an obedience not birthed in affection. That's how we'll say it. So we're trying to implement kingdom laws, kingdom realities, but we don't know the king. So it doesn't come with his heart. And often it comes with a total misunderstanding because there's a lack of the knowledge of God that supports the implementation, the execution of the kingdom. So our primary calling, our primary responsibility with the hungering for the realization of the kingdom of God is in the pursuit of the knowledge of God. That's the primary responsibility and it's the primary method through which the kingdom of God will be made manifest is in the pursuit of of God. Primarily in the pursuit of God. When we pursue God and we seek after him with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole strength, when we do this, the natural overflow of it will be the implementation, the execution of the kingdom's laws and ways. But typically, what you see is an attempt to bring the kingdom to earth without first having the knowledge of a real living God. So what's the knowledge of God? Um, In John 17, Jesus prays, it is eternal life. This is eternal life that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And the word know that he uses is not know about, it's experientially know. It, it, It means that you have gone somewhere with this God. You've done things with this God. You've experienced him. You've walked with him. You've been close to him. It's an, it's an experiential knowledge. So when he says, eternal life is this, that they know you, it's that we've done things together, God. I've met you, God. I've experienced you, God. I know you. 
You know, there's the old saying of uh, a man with a, an encounter is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. Because some of you maybe have had, maybe would have never met my wife, but you can't convince me that she's not waiting for me at home. Because I know. You can argue with me all day all the reasons why she wouldn't be there or that she doesn't exist, but I know. And the difference as it plays out in Christianity is we've been often trying to arm ourselves with arguments rather than encounter. And the difference plays out like someone who has read the biography of a great war hero and knows all the amazing accomplishments and deeds that he's done and the great things that he would do if he were still around today. And it's like reading a biography as compared to listening to his armor bearer talk about him who went into battle with him and was there and saw the things with his own eyes and experienced the strength and the deliverance of this warrior on the battlefield. The way these two are going to present that same reality is drastically different, even if they're sharing the same truth. And in much of Christianity today, the conversation about Jesus is largely in reference to someone whose biography we've read. And we haven't walked with him through these things and experientially known him as Savior. I mean, the, the, the experience of what happens to us when we, when we experience salvation. There's a Christian word for you. The removal of the guilt of our sin and the experience of that changes us forever. No one could ever convince you once you've experienced being saved from your sin and your guilt. When you've experienced that, no one could ever convince you that you aren't forgiven again. You can't. Let me back up. So why do we seek the knowledge of God? Primarily because this is our eternal calling. In heaven, in eternity, there will be no ministry. There will be no healing. There will be no preaching. There will be no deliverance. Why? Because there's no more sin. There's no more sorrow. There's no more sickness. There's no more Satan. Right? So in heaven, our primary calling is pursuit of God, is the growing in the knowledge of God. He's infinite. We will get to know him and be amazed by him and awed by him throughout the next billion upon billion upon billion years. He will never cease to fascinate and amaze us. And for most of us, the idea of pursuing God is filled with boredom. And, right, I don't know where to start. So, Primarily, we're seeking the knowledge of God because this is what we will do primarily throughout eternity. To love the Lord our God. That is the first and greatest command. Secondly, He is the solution to everything. Encounter with God is the solution to everything. When I say He is the solution, I don't mean He has the solution. I mean, he is the solution. He is the solution. 
Encounter with God is the answer to every question and the resolution to every dilemma, problem, or grief. You remember Job? Of course you do. Job is the guy that no one wants his anointing. Nobody wants Job's ministry or mantle, as they say in charismatic circles. Job went through horrible turmoil, lost his family, lost his home, his livestock, his health, everything. And do you remember what happened? His friends came to him. Do you know that his friends' answers were all theologically sound? Maybe you sinned. You could have brought this upon yourself. Maybe this. They were theologically sound answers. This is the danger of attempting to bring the realities of the kingdom to earth without a primary knowledge of God in which it's rooted. Because the right response for Job's friends would have been, seek first him, he is the answer. Because though all of their answers were theologically sound, they only led to more questions for Job, and more questions, and more questions, and more questions. And he had no answers. When God confronts Job, and I think chapter 38, Job is overwhelmed, and he says, I have heard of you with my ear, but now my eye has seen, and I repent in dust and ashes. In other words, all of the right answers didn't provide me with the solution that one encounter with you provided me. God, I have no more questions because I have experienced you. Theological answers can be appropriate and even correct, but they don't bring resolution. Only an encounter with God can bring resolution to the questions and problems of life. We tend to talk about relationship with God. Christianity is not a religion. It's not about rules. It's relationship. But often it's merely from a theological understanding. We know that because that's what we are taught. That's what we've been told. And so we're just regurgitating the argument. So we then fall into the trap of Job's friends. People have questions. We give them the right answers but it leads to more questions. Our primary response to their inquisition should be to push them toward an encounter with God. You can give them the right answer, but it should come with the tagline, but you need to meet him for yourself. I can tell you all the right stuff and tell you the way it should be, but it's not going to do you any good compared to one moment when you meet God. That moment will change everything for you. So, if we, as individuals, don't know the effect of an experiential relationship with God, then we can't very well proclaim him to others. Or at the very least, our answers will be theological rather than relational. Relational knowledge. So how do I seek God? It's a fair question, isn't it? How do I seek God? Do I 
read my Bible more? Do I, do I need to sit and dialogue in prayer for 12 hours? Do... Seeking God is a heart position. It's a leaning. It's a pursuit. It's a hunger. As I said earlier, I believe that the greatest gift in the church today may be the gift of hunger. If you go to church conferences and people do altar calls, I think I've only been to one where there was ever an altar call to receive the gift of hunger. I've been to dozens where they wanted to pray for people to get the gift of healing, the gift of deliverance, the gift of evangelism, the gift of on and on and on. But one time in my life have I ever been to a church service where they said, I want to pray that you'd have the gift of hunger. And I believe that is the most valuable gift in the church today, and it's a gift. So to start seeking God, we have to start by asking God for this gift. Because we have to have the awareness that this whole thing is done by grace. Our salvation comes by grace. Our pursuit of God comes by grace. Our, our faithfulness comes by grace. So as we ask God for salvation, we also ask God for hunger. So it's because we understand our own inability to continually pursue God through good season and through bad season, through exciting time and through boring time, that we come to him and we say, God, I need you to give me the gift of hunger. Deposit hunger in me so that in every season and every phase of life, I will pursue you more than anything else. It's a heart position. It's typically easy to hunger after God when we're in a tough or difficult season. Yeah? I mean, we're Christians, right? So we know that when I'm going through a difficult season, I'm going to seek God. I'm going to cry out to God. And, and often this is where hunger begins to be born. Begins to be born. It's not matured yet. It's the beginning of the birth of hunger, the gift. Because primarily when we're crying out to God in our desperation in a difficult time, we're not crying out to God because we want Him. We're primarily crying out to God because I want to be delivered from the pain that I'm in right now. Right? Maybe I'm the only one. I know for me, when I was desperately crying out for God to deliver me, it was because I hated the time of life I was in. And I wanted his deliverance more than I wanted his face. I didn't know it, and he did, but he's not afraid. He was happy that I was coming to him for deliverance rather than seeking out other things to pacify my pain. And yet, it wasn't the maturity of hunger, but he uses it. So even our hunger that's wrongly motivated, God will use for the good of those who love him. And he will mature it into a hunger that voluntarily wants to seek God more than the greatest pleasures of earth, because we've found that he is our greatest treasure. You are my lot and my portion, O God, said by a king with one of the greatest, wealthiest kingdoms that's ever been on earth. God, of all the pleasures that I have on the earth, you are my lot and my portion. It is you that I crave, that I desire above everything else. That is hunger in its mature form. 
In 2006, I just gotten married and we moved to Tennessee for six weeks. And I was, it was a time where I had so many questions and I, God had spoken to me, you know, in these little ways and I knew that he was active in my life, but I did not know, am I filled with the Spirit of God? I did not know, am I really born of God? I did not know if I'd really met God. I was chasing him like crazy for four years until this point, but I didn't know any of these things. So I'm in Tennessee, and uh, somebody told me fasting, it, it helps position your heart. It makes you desperate. It makes you hungry. It doesn't earn anything, but it, it helps position your heart to seek and receive from God. I'm, oh, okay, try that out. And I was having dreams, and I knew God was speaking, but I didn't know do I know God? And so in Tennessee, I'm down there, and one day I'm fasting, and we had this little tiny apartment. It was like less than 300 square feet, cinder block apartment. And uh, I'm in there one day, and suddenly I feel like God wants me to go outside and get on my knees in the road at this intersection and yell you know, like to the mountains of Tennessee, that Jesus is Lord. This isn't a neighborhood residential. And so I'm just like, I don't know if I can do this, you know. And, but I was so desperate to know, to meet God, and I thought maybe, maybe somehow this would, this would help. And then I figured, well, all of our neighbors are Russian anyway. They probably can't understand me. So out I went and down on my knees and yelled, Jesus is Lord, and then ran back inside. Nothing happened. But it was, it was out of obedience. It was because, God, I want you more than I want my reputation, more than I want to look normal. Nothing happened. I get a phone call a couple days later. Hey, uh, Pastor Tuttle from here in Marquette. He says, I, I want you to speak at an event on campus in September. Cool. We'd been praying about whether or not we were supposed to come back to Marquette. There's the open door. Back we come. I'm supposed to speak on Saturday and Friday night, there's a group called Leicester's Silence here. And I'm so, by this point, I'm so desperate to meet God. I couldn't hardly stand myself. And so there's no chairs in here and worship starts. And I'm, I'm just like crying out, God. It, it, in the middle of the night, I was waking up, yelling. In my, in, in my sleep, I was yelling, I, I, I want more of you, God. And... Mary would like, she thought I was going crazy, and, and I was. Um, I was going out of my mind. And here I am in the service, and I'm right over there, and I'm just crying out. And suddenly, I can't explain it any other way, but boom. And I began to weep and tremble and shake. And I had a friend who was in the back of the room, and he, he said it felt like the building had been struck by lightning. And I felt like I'd been struck by lightning. And I knew that God had met me. And I, I wept for like five minutes. I couldn't put myself together to even, to, to even try to communicate what was happening. And I turned to a girl that was next to me and I put my hand on her and I said something to her and the same thing happened to her and she began to have the same kind of experience that I was happening. And the presence of God had become so tangible in that part of the room that neither one of us could even function. And from that point on, I'd, I realized 
I've met the living God. There's no more arguments. I don't need to, uh, I don't need to know why creation or evolution and all the, the uh, apologetics, I don't need that. They support what I know. I know I've met God. I know he's faithful to his word. And so I know that if he said it, it's true, even if I don't understand it. But seeking after God doesn't end after he comes and meets you one time. What started that night, Friday night with Leicester's silence, was a realization that one encounter with God is better than anything I've ever experienced in my entire life. He has pleasures in his right hand forevermore. He is the greatest experience we will ever have, the presence of God. It doesn't end once you've met him. This is an eternal pursuit. Encounter with God gives us the experience in the history to know that he has pleasures forevermore in his right hand. Once you've met him and experienced the joy and delight of his presence, you no longer need to be convinced that he is the greatest treasure man could possibly seek. However, it still requires discipline to pursue him. We can have had encounter with God, and it does not take but a month, and we start to fritter our energy and our pursuits, and we're back into the same patterns that we were a month ago, and it's been three weeks since I sat alone just wanting to be with God. Why? Because as our minds are renewed, we tend to fall back into patterns that we've known. The reason that pastor cut off Sunday's service, bringing it back full circle, is to send a message to all of us that if you got what you were chasing today, Monday you'd go back to the same patterns and you wouldn't chase God again until next Sunday. But the goal of our lives is to change the way that we live so that our first and primary thought, pursuit, desire upon awakening in the morning is, I want the presence of God today. I want to meet you today, God. And if he does, great. You wake up with the same desire the next day. And if he doesn't, you go to bed thinking, I'm one day closer to my next encounter with Jesus. We learn to live this way as a part of normal life. The desert fathers in the first century, they, they separated themselves from everything. They went monastic. So they wanted to pursue God, but they separated themselves from everything. We're convinced that you can live this way in the midst of a culture that doesn't know him. We're convinced that you can live this way with a family and children and a job in a profane culture where no one knows him and have encounters with God on a day-to-day basis and then become an encounter of God for someone who doesn't know him yet. When we started out, we thought we had, to, we had to get away from everything that was not Christian. We had to give, get away from everything that was secular. But what we discovered is 
When you walk with God, you can be in any culture and you're still walking with God. The dirtier the culture, it doesn't matter because God doesn't change. He's still holy. We're still holy when we walk with God. It doesn't matter if I'm in church or in the ghetto or in a strip club. When I'm walking with God, I'm walking with God. This isn't me promoting that everyone goes, leaves here and goes to the Big Bonds strip club and... Palmer or wherever it is. <clears throat> My point is, you don't have to completely separate yourself from everything on earth to pursue God every day. You've got to make choices with your time. How you invest your time in your life and what your heart chases after. Is it money? Is it entertainment? What do you need to adjust in your daily schedule so that your primary pursuit in the leaning, the bent of your heart is encounter with God? That's what we have to change about the way that we live. And that's what tonight is for. So my point for the whole evening, as you start another semester and whatever's going on, at the outset, make the first tenth God's, whatever it is, <clears throat> if it's an hour, if it's a half an hour, make the first portion his portion and schedule the rest of your life around that. So is it, I have to get up at 5 a.m. to do this? Maybe. Does it mean, maybe I, I, I don't get to watch movies every night like I'm accustomed to, or maybe I got to stop playing video games every night like I'm accustomed to. I don't know what it is for you. Is there a sacrifice? Yes. It is a reprioritization of the way that you live and what matters to you. And when you prioritize your life around an encounter with God, he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11. So when we prioritize to diligently seek him and we move the events of our life around him, we will have more encounter with him than those who do not Schedule their lives around God. It's sowing and reaping, guys. So if he is my priority and I pursue him more than that person, I will encounter him more than that person. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So as we go into another semester and start another year and everyone talks about New Year's resolutions, good. What in your life is going to change so that the primary pursuit is to meet with Jesus. Do it in the word, do it in prayer, do it in worship, do it in silence. However you do it, I'm not telling you how to do it. I'm just telling you, you need to do it. And if you need to let go of relationships that consume too much time, if you need to let go of television that consumes too much time, or whatever it is, you may be able to get a whole lot more done when you schedule your life this way. That's what I discovered. My capacity to accomplish increased by four times when I started to schedule my life this way. I can't explain it. It's just the way that it has happened. So how we're going to close tonight is, um, and your small group leaders are going to hound you on this this year. Don't come back Sunday without having made adjustments to the way that you are going to live 
because otherwise you're just settling into a Christian existence, and it's not really a heart pursuit of God. If I don't pursue my wife and make time for my wife, my marriage will be horrible. If I don't make time for God first, my marriage will be horrible. I'll be trying to serve my wife out of my own strength. But I'm not much of a husband if I don't prioritize time with my wife above time with everyone else. I used to have time for my buddies like crazy. I sacrificed and lost time with friends for the sake of my wife. Do I regret it? Not for a second. Do I still love my friends? Of course I do. But I love her more. (laughs) So we have to do the same in our pursuit of God. So Father... First, Lord, I ask for a grace and a gift of hunger for each of us tonight. Father, we want to desire you. Lord, if it's in difficulty, if it's in a situation that is full of hardship for us, whatever it takes to cultivate this and birth hunger in our lives, Father, we ask that you do it. But, but mature hunger so that when we're in a good season, a season of prosperity and reward, that we choose to pursue you more than the pleasures of this life. That we choose to find delight in you more than anything else. And so, God, I ask that um, you'd give us wisdom and cause us to see the reward is greater than the sacrifices we're going to have to make to choose to live differently to pursue you primarily uh, in all of our doings. So we love you. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen.